Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Over the years, I've done, I would say, hundreds of interviews about the energy transition, uh, specifically, and Energy Talks listeners may be interested to know that in the past three years, are we now have done over 1,200 of these uh, expert interviews, uh, both uh, about 1,100 on uh, on uh, video, which you can find on our YouTube channel, and another, well, I think this is going to be podcast episode 87, so we're rapidly closing in on 100. And one of the things that I've discovered over the years is that everyone agrees that over the last two or three years, the energy transition has accelerated significantly. But how fast? And there are different schools of thought on this. Uh, some of the economists I've talked to still think that energy inertia, energy system inertia, will mean that globally things are going to change very slowly. Uh, there's plenty of people in the middle. But I'm always interested to talk to Kingsmill Bond, late of Carbon Tracker, now with Rocky Mountain Institute in Colorado, because he brings a data and evidence-based argument for the for the case that the energy transition will be very rapid. And given the events of the last couple of years, and particularly 2022 because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's a fair argument to be made that Kingsmill is right. Now, he put out an email the other day about uh, an article that was written by Oxford researchers, Empirically Grounded Technology Forecasts and the Energy Transition, was published September 13th in Jewel, the journal. And I'm going to talk to him about that. So welcome to the interview, Kingsmill. Great. Thanks, Malcolm. Good to be here. Well, I always enjoy our conversations because you are your argument is very persuasive. And I have to say that in the oh, three-ish years that I've been interviewing you, the evidence continues to mount that you're right. And that will shock some of your critics. Uh, but I think that that is increasingly the case. And so I'm very interested to hear your take on this. And But before we get into that, you've now moved from Carbon Tracker to Rocky Mountain Institute. What? Uh, let's talk a little bit about that. What um, prompted you to make the move? Well, the um, RI is a, a very unusual um, organization, as you know. It's um, it's not just a, it's not only a think tank, um, but it's also a, a do tank um, and, and a scale tank. So one of the great attractions is um is working with people actually are on the ground in china and india um and and working in in the united states uh in in the electricity industry and uh in the trucking industry and in lots of different areas and actually getting stuff done on on the ground and actually having the opportunity to work with and interact with um uh people who are doing that is very very helpful 
Right. And what are, if you, can you share with our listeners uh, one or two projects that you've been involved in since you, uh, since you arrived at RMI? So um, I've been doing a lot of work setting out the, the broad context of what's going on in, in, in kind of RMI terms. So, you know, we have these people on the ground, for example, in India working on uh, speeding up the deployment of electric two and three wheelers. And, and that needs to be put into a wider context of the size of the two or three wheeler market in, in, in India and the growth and, and how that can then be um, taken to other countries. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, it's that type of con contextualizing of, 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 of uh, projects which are happening on the ground. Or for example, in, in the Caribbean, our team is, has been um, building up on in, in the Caribbean and in other islands, they've been um, building up uh, uh, deployment of solar and wind um, installations. They've been training policymakers. Again, it's it's just my, my job is simply to to look at this great work that's going on and 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 to to to, to seek to understand the significance um, to the wider global picture of, of what's happening. Is it fair to say? Because I hear this all the time that uh, in the energy transition, the uh, the um, resource that's often missing is talent. And one would think that if we're talking about policy talent, and, and again, experts are always telling me how important policy framework is for attracting capital and getting the investment in, in, the, uh, in the clean energy economy. So have you found in your work with in India and, and the Caribbean that, in fact, uh, there is maybe a shortage of folks with policy experience to to design the policy, design the regulations, and then and then successfully implement it, that someone like yourself can come in and, and provide some of that expertise? Well, actually, it's not just in the global south, but it's a global phenomenon. I mean, for example, in the UK, um the uh the, the national grid recently put out a very interesting paper looking at different ways to regulate the electricity market and you know in about 10 different vectors and and they basically said the system absolutely not fit for purpose and you know we don't really quite know what to do but you know here's a paper with a whole load of ideas what what do you think so this is not a um a, a lack of knowledge or expertise which is confined to you know any one market we're all learning as we go along yeah i would have to say that my experience in canada uh, would would back that up uh, I hear over and over again uh, at the at the provincial level in Canada, at the federal level, at the industry level, um, the understanding of the energy transition, the global energy transition, how quickly it's changing, is is not very deep, and and the amount of the the researchers available, the ability to you know the to do analysis, and and then turn that into policy uh is it in canada it turns out to be a very long time and you know it, it leads to all sorts of problems in terms of marshalling capital and, and all that sort of thing so i guess you're right i mean i can i can see it here in the market where i uh i'm most uh, familiar and uh uh, any ideas, just quickly before we get into this other discussion, which is, I guess, related, any ideas on how we ramp up the intellectual capital that the energy transition requires? Well, I, I mean, for example, in, in RMI, we have this, this this training program for training policymakers and, and making them aware of the 
uh, different areas of opportunity. I, I also think this is kind of one of those problems which will 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 obviously reduce over time because as these technologies get cheaper and as more and more companies um, figure out how to do it, they then take that expertise to other countries and markets. I mean, Aqua, for example, is a Saudi Arabian developer, which is um, uh, developing a line from Morocco to United Kingdom. Um, and and uh, um, uh, I, sorry, yeah, I, th I think... Um, when I speak to these uh, developers from all kinds of different countries, they're always, they're always extremely inspiring with uh, the ideas they come up with. The more that, you know, the, and the closer they get to policymakers, the better. I think there is one what, very major issue which which we've sought to address, or I've sought specifically to address, which is this whole narrative point, which is so far the narrative is very dominated by kind of business as usual, fossil fuel type analysis, which is um, w which holds policymakers back from actually making slightly bolder decisions which are not in fact that bold um and 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 it, we feel that if we can lay out a, a much cleaner clearer uh, perspective on 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 how quickly change can happen then policymakers can actually uh, tend to be a bit more bold yeah i would have to agree with that because uh, uh narrative affects politics politics affects what's possible for policy and as long as incumbents, and we're, you know, it's easy to point the finger at oil and gas, as I do quite often, but there are other incumbents in energy systems, such as utilities, which are notoriously conservative, and a host of other uh, uh, players uh, in the energy space that, that uh, you know, are also conservative and, and have kind of incumbent style uh, narratives. Well, look. Uh, interesting context for this, uh, for our discussion we're going to have today. So let's talk about the general give me an overview of of this paper if you wouldn't mind so th this paper um by um don farmer and and his colleagues rupert way and others uh, does something really quite interesting and it goes to the heart of the uh, energy transition they are looking at learning curves the speed with which costs of core energy technologies fall over time and actually most of these people are actually mathematicians so they get 30, 40 years worth of data in the case of solar and wind um, and 100 years of data in the case of uh, fossil fuels. And they just look at uh, what's been happening to costs over time. And uh, and, and this and in fact, in a, in a series of other technologies outside the uh, energy sector. And what they discovered was uh, you know, two or three quite interesting things. The first was that it's quite unusual for for uh, for costs to, to get onto learning because it's quite unusual for uh, to in in any industry for costs to uh, to to fall over time and then what they discover is that most most industries don't exhibit very very powerful learning curves you know costs don't fall uh, quick, quick, quickly over time um what they then discovered was that for those industries where the costs do get onto learning curves the learning curves tend to be extremely sticky that is to say uh, once your costs fall by let's say 25% for every doubling of deployment um the most likely scenario um is that the next time you double deployment the costs will also fall by 25 percent so they're very sticky um and, and and then you know the third point is that they they quantify this this learning rate for the for the renewable energy technologies and it's you know between 20 and 30 percent and for fossil fuels it's basically zero um so so you have two very different types of technology now competing against each other uh, uh one of the the uh well an interview that i did with uh, mike andrade who's a, a long time uh, electronics executive uh, in Canada. And he made the point that once you, you uh, energy as a commodity and energy as a technology, those are two very different things. 
And once yeah. you once you switch over to energy as a technology, now you're talking about electric, you know, the 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 principles that underlie those supply chains come from the electronics industry, not from say the oil and gas and, and coal industry, not from commodities. And and it reinforces exactly what you said. And we haven't made that mental shift yet. We haven't, you know, we we did it with the we did it with the internet and computers, you know, with Moore's Law. That kind of became a very popular. I think everybody knows what Moore's Law is. And it's it's we kind of need an, an equivalent for clean energy technology like wind and solar and batteries and electrolyzers, the equivalent of Moore's Law and an easy explanation so that it can become part of our common you know lexicon. Yeah, and 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 I mean there is this thing which again is is very old called rights law, which is which is if Moore's law is about time, then rights law is about volume. So every doubling of deployment, you your cost fall by whatever it's 25 percent, um, and that's rights law, and, and it certainly seems to apply to these technologies. Um, I mean, of course, it, it also applies, and I think the the area it was first discovered was in the U.S. airline industry, where the cost of constructing airlines, um, you know. In, in in the 1950s was was seen to be falling um on 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 a quite clear uh, rate the more you built the more airlines you built um the 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 uh, the, the cheaper the cost got um the, the glory of course about these renewable energy technologies precisely as you say the technology is not commodities they are uh, they're modular they're discrete um and and they can be done when it was solar in particular can be done at any scale um and if you've got learning effects taking place everywhere um and 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 uh be it Having less polysilicon, or um, in 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 per panel, or be it um, having better ways of putting solar panels on roofs in Germany than feeding through across the rest of Europe. I mean, there are lots of ways you can learn and, and improve the way you do stuff. Well, let's talk about some of the consequences once you uh, you know once these technologies are on a learning curve, and we have rights law uh, at work here. Um, one of them uh, that you noted in your piece was volumes decline. So, so um, the I mean the, the key sorry the key conclusion was not so much about volume. The rate of growth obviously declines over time simply because that that's kind of the the, the nature of growth. You go from one hundred percent down to fifty to twenty five, whatever it is. But um, actually, the really interesting conclusion was that um, they were able to come up with likely prices for uh solar and wind and batteries and green hydrogen in future years and put a kind of probability distribution around those prices and you know again it's a little bit too clever for us in financial markets to to do this kind of stuff i i i think or at least it's too complex um but, but the central point was that the you know the central scenario for the price of solar in in 2050 is about ten dollars per megawatt hour um, for batteries, it's kind of fifty dollars per kilowatt hour. For um, uh, for hydrogen, it's it's less than a dollar per, per per kilogram. So much much lower prices than uh, we have today. And they then think through the consequences. And maybe I'm I'm stepping ahead of myself a little bit here. But so so having figured out roughly what the prices are likely to be um, ten and twenty years into the future, considerably lower than now. They then think through the really important question, which very, very few models ask, which is what will human humanity do with very cheap energy? Right. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why I like the work of Tony Siva, 
because Tony Siba attempts to answer that question. So in uh, uh, he says that uh, once the marginal cost of electricity falls to almost zero, that will lay the foundation for a new style of economy, which will lead to all sorts of innovations in the way we get around and how we produce our food and how we design our cities. And we'll see a flourishing of human civilization like we've never seen if we make the right decisions because it's just as likely we'll make the wrong ones and and it won't we won't enjoy those benefits now Siba has plenty of critics and they you know kind of ridicule his futuristic uh, take on on the world uh but that I mean he's essentially take taking a uh he's leaping from where you the authors of this uh journal article uh stopped and applying that, principle uh you know to all sorts of you know life in general civilization different sectors and so on anyway just yeah, as, I'm, as an I aside say, i'm a huge fan of tony sieber i think his work is very um brilliant but actually i mean th this paper is th these are much much more concrete um mathematically based pieces of analysis and all they basically go is look we're going to have this um significantly cheaper energy than, than we have today from from solar and wind, we get able to store it in in cheap batteries. And when we don't have um, when we don't have sun uh, or, or wind, we're going to be able to put it into hydrogen, um, which which will also be fairly uh, uh, cheap, certainly much cheaper than other sources we have today. And and the point they then make is well, actually those four solutions they're not nearly as fantastically exciting and futuristic as Tony, but you know they then say look those four solutions will enable us basically to replicate the fossil fuel system at lower price and this is the other point you know this is then the second thing they do they actually go and calculate well what's the price of putting into place the necessary technology to to deploy these uh cheaper uh sources and they you know they figure out that it's going to be cheaper um than business as usual by about 12 trillion dollars uh, i mean to be honest that's a uh, a number which requires a huge amount of um un which is, has a huge amount of uncertainty around it and again it's not a number i particularly want to hang my hat on but it, it doesn't really matter. The main point is that it's it's lower than continuing with business as usual. And the reason why it's lower um, is because the more of this stuff you deploy, the cheaper the costs get. And, and, and this then is also going to the heart of the some of the weaknesses of, of the current uh, competing fossil fuel incumbent models. I want to get your opinion on some a question I often ask analysts and anyone who's listened to yesterday's uh, uh, interview with the uh, the engineer from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory about uh, about medium and heavy duty transportation. Uh, I asked it that to to him, and, and that is, uh, what about the the influence of value on the adoption of these technologies? And now I used this example yesterday to illustrate my point. I was listening to a podcast uh, with uh, Ford CEO, Jim Farley, and he said the number one reason why uh, buyers uh, purchase a, an, F4, an F-150 Lightning electric truck is the ability to wire it into their home and have three days of electricity stored in the battery uh, if there's a power outage. So if you're in California, Texas, you, know, you can see the advantage there. And he says the number one, number one reason well, what I don't know how you calculate the economics of that, 
but the 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 value that helps drive adoption. So once once the technology is at least competitive, never mind if it's lower cost, but if it's at least competitive, it's those other kinds of value. You know, an electric vehicle, you have greater torque. You know, so it's a peppier drive than an yeah. internal combustion engine. You, you all sorts of these kinds of things you can't get with fossil fuel technology. You now have other attributes that, yeah, uh, that provide really value. I mean, t t for example, this, as you know, this, um, well, the last time the IEA did the analysis was 770 million people in the world without access to electricity. The, in, in many instances, because they, they have uh, relatively weak governments or, or they're distant from um, uh, current sources of, of uh, electricity provision. And, uh, you know, it turns out that solar is, of course, especially well um, set up to provide these people with uh, the electricity they they require. So again, there's a kind of another example of of, of these new technologies uh, which can be uh, dispersed and deployed anywhere um, at, at, at pretty much any scale, solving problems that we can't solve with the current system. And I, mean, I think that's that's very well put. There will be many other reasons to to be adopting them. Again, this is one other reason why we should be very very skeptical of the kind of business as usual models which are being used so heavily across. Um, across most most people are forecasting the future of energy the kind of tweaking the current system and actually the only really important and again I, I i say this with a degree of confidence as a kind of some with a financial market background you don't want to forecast 733 variables right you're never going to get it right what you really do want to do is get the top four or five variables right and that's what this oxford paper is doing it's saying right let's get these right let's think through intelligently what that means let's maybe then not even adding in, um, Markham, your you know your excellent value points, but you know it's just opening up the door to whole new new series of options. Okay, well we've talked about uh, clean energy technology. Now, what about the consequences for fossil fuels, particularly oil and gas? Because you made some very excellent points about what happened when prices fall and volumes fall, and and maybe explain that for us. Well, I mean the. The, the kind of first point that we've been making for a while is simply to say, just just to look at the maths of, of, of the um, of, of how change works. I mean, you get peak demand for a, an incumbent technology, in this instance, fossil fuels, when the growing technology is quite small, um, sim simply because of, of the fact that any fast growing new technology um, will will take all of the growth in the slow growing system i mean the classic example would be the transition from um from car sorry horses to cars you know peak horse was literally the day before cars um made it into the market in any size um and it's exactly the same in in any transition you know so so the these very quickly growing technologies will well I, we actually suggest that they've already driven a peak in demand for fossil fuels globally, that peak we think is 2019. We're kind of bouncing along a plateau at the moment. Um, and that that kind of peak, and, and the you know the reality is somewhat obscured by Putin's uh, uh, war, which has created a supply shock, but um, which of course has driven change more rapidly. But anyway, when, when the, the fog of war dissipates, it will, I believe, become clearer that actually um, renewables are big enough to supply all incremental growth um in in the future at that point you know fossil fuel demand starts falling um and and then it just becomes a very different uh environment in which fossil fuel operators are are, 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 are working 
I want to interject here with uh, uh, a note about the narrative in Canada from the oil and gas industry and, and its supporters, people like Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, who, by the way, will only be Premier for until tomorrow. He was forced to resign and his successor will be chosen tomorrow, just as an aside. Anyway, the point here is, and I've heard Kenny say this, and I've heard CEOs say this. They say, well, you know, just look at the IEA net zero uh, forecast, and the volume of oil goes from 100 million barrels a day down to 40 million barrels a day. That's lots of that's lots of demand. We'll be fine. We can compete. We can compete. Prices will be good. You know, don't worry about it. Don't you know? Don't worry. Be happy. And your that seems to me to be the ultimate let the ridiculous. Like there's a hundred million barrels of supply going to be chasing forty million barrels of demand, and prices are going to that doesn't makes no sense to me at all. I'm hardly an economist, but I can figure that out. And you address this in prices fall, profits collapse, assets get stronger, get stranded, companies go bust, on and on and on. Maybe just give us a your take on that. Yeah, sure. I mean, look, I I think. Again, what, what what we're saying is is by no means radical. It's just completely normal, um, and and it's been seen many times in many industries. It just hasn't really happened in the fossil fuel industry because it hasn't had a, a serious competitor um, for the last hundred years. So, um, so yeah, what happens is you you, you get um, you get someone else taking all the supply. Um, and of course, in the fossil fuel industry, because you've got natural decline rates, um, it's kind of a little bit harder. Um, than that, but that's also because these new energy technologies are growing on S curves. It's kind of, it postpones the end game maybe for five or 10 years, but it doesn't really save you um, because eventually they get so big that they not merely supply all of the growth, but all of the decline as well. Um, and, and as the kind of end game comes in, comes, comes into view, you start to see incumbents going, gee, I might as well sell my, my oil now because it, I, I won't be able to sell at the same price in five years time. Um, and that then creates uh, a, a additional pressure on the system in lots of ways where where the pressure becomes uh, more intense. But um, yeah, I mean, the classic example, of course, is the US coal sector. You know, US coal, half the US coal sector went bust when um, global coal demand was just like one or 2% off the peak. Uh, That's what happens because incumbents build on the assumption of growth. They take out debt on the assumption of of growth materializing when the growth doesn't materialize over capacity. Um, and, uh, and 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 then you get lower prices, and lower prices actually what does the value, the, the damage. So, sorry, just to finish, this is the key point, Markham, as you know, as well as I do, it's not about volume, it's about price. Um, it's what it's price that really damages uh, in, in, in incumbents. Well, I would agree. And uh, I, I suppose in Canada, the um, dominance of the oil sands in oil supply uh, adds a wrinkle to it because the heavy crude oil market, which makes up about 10, 10 and a half million barrels out of that 100 million barrels a day, uh, it's it behaves differently than the light, sweet crude. Uh, you know, there's you know half over half of the refining capacities in the U.S. Uh, some of the com- Canada's competitors, like Venezuela and soon Mexico, are either leaving the market or or production is going down. So I suppose you could argue, you know, that that there's a bit of uh, that the oil sands in Canada are to some extent insulated a little bit from the forces we're talking about. But it's really hard to see how they're insul- that they won't be affected by 
the collapse in prices because they were in 2014, 2015, when the last time that there was a huge price collapse in the in the U.S. Uh, sorry, in, in global oil markets, uh, thanks to the the Saudis uh, sort of opening up the taps to get rid of the American uh, shale producers, and it was only like you know one and a half percent oversupply. And prices went down to, you know, from 80 or 90, whatever they were down to, you know, the low twenties and everybody lost money and you could, and it's hard to see how that won't happen. If you take 5 million barrels out of, you know, of demand out of today's uh, market, or you take 10 million barrels or 20 million barrels. Yeah. And, and I mean, again, just, I'm sure many of your other um, interlocutors will have made a, a similar point, but you know, you these changes can creep up on you quite quickly when you've got the kind of extraordinary growth rates we're currently seeing. I mean, you need about 50 million cars to replace a million barrels of oil a day, um, which seems like a lot, except when you're growing, as we are at the moment, 60% a year, you're going to get there very quickly. Um, and 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 that's, I, I guess, the, the point is that we have been operating in one paradigm without any competition. We're going to move to a new paradigm with much more competition. And these assets, this Canadian oil science, <clears throat> And they need a savior. They need someone to reinvent them and to figure out a new use for them. Indeed, they, indeed they do. And perhaps they, they will in the near future. Uh, regular listeners will know that I've been advocating for a while that the oil sands be transitioned uh, from uh, uh, producing feedstock for uh, fuels to feedstock for materials manufacturing and that they, they uh, be required to go net zero uh, emissions uh, and uh, also assume responsi financial responsibility for all of their environmental liabilities. Uh, so there is some hope. There's a There might be a pathway, uh, whether or not they'll take it, whether governments will force them, the oil sands to take it is quite another question. One of the, the, the points that you make, uh, Kingsmill, uh, in your in your piece is that the cost of capital rises. Now we're already seeing this because nobody wants to re nobody really wants to put money into oil and gas, uh, particularly coal, but not oil and gas. And and so the cost of capital rises. The uh, in order to get capital, oil and gas companies have to basically bribe shareholders, right? I mean, they have to you increase their dividends. They have to buy back shares to to uh, to support their uh, share price. And if that's happening now, before we've seen a, a decline, what do you think will happen, you know, after peak demand and decline sets in? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly this, you know, this this calculation that we're making about peaking demand sort of spreading right across the fossil fuel complex is is not yet widely entrenched within either the modeling community or the fossil fuel community. So um, as a result of that, I mean, for example, I went to a conference yesterday where they're talking about um, demand not peaking for a, for a, another sort of five or ten years, and um, you know, significantly higher than we are today. So there's really no risk, and and everything is fine, and keep on building and expanding. Um, so you know, as and when that realization really sets in, I, th I think um, you you will inevitably see a major uh, shift both in 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 an act in, in action and 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 in perception for these industries, and it will, it will become even harder for them uh, to raise capital. Let's wrap up our conversation this way. Uh, now, this is, a, you know, the, the Oxford uh, economists uh, modeled this out, and that's great. Uh, we know that their, you know, a model is basically the best guess uh, with the best assumptions uh, that we could come up with. This is not, uh, it's not a prediction. It's not a forecast. 
uh, and it might not, it might happen. Chances are, it sounds, I, I think I would tend more to think that it would happen, but here's the, here's the thing. If I was a, 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 an oil and gas dependent economy like Canada, that's far and away the the biggest export sector. I think it's about 120 billion. And the next sector is is automobile exports, which is about 64, 65 billion. So it's a huge part of the Canadian economy. And if I was a policymaker, I'd be look I'd be looking at this study and going, well, now if I was a prudent man, would I would I depend on, would I count on the best case scenario or would I plan for the worst case scenario? And what I see over and over from with policymakers is they keep planning for the best case scenario. And I, I find that, now you meet with policymakers all over the world. Have you got any insights into why they do that? Well, I mean, it's, it's human nature, is it not, to um, to, to want and forecast um, c- continuity and to assume that everything is going to be uh, fine. It was quite interesting, for example, in the um, in, in the, the the uh, disaster that struck Russia on, on February the 25th, like the people closest to the center of power in Moscow were telling me that this isn't going to happen. You know, it was absolutely fine. Um, and it was only actually outsiders who had took a slightly more balanced, nuanced view. Um, but look, I, I think the way this paper, for example, puts it is you make good bets and bad bets. And mathematically, by far the most likely scenario is one which he's continued fall in renewable prices and continued growth. Um, and under those circumstances, having a, a business as usual scenario and, and, and building for that is not a kind of best case. Um, it's it's absolutely delusional case. It's very, very unlikely uh, to happen. And that's the big problem is that so many of these scenarios that people are following are deeply, profoundly unlikely. And, you know, it's just really dumb to have policy which 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 does that. Um, and, and yeah, it, this is a problem, not, you know, not just in your neck of the woods, but of course, I'm I know I know, know very little compared to you. But, you know, in many other countries that where we're operating, people find it very hard to, to, to break free from status quo. Indeed, they do. Uh, Kingsmill, a pleasure as always. And thank you very much for this. Good luck with your gig at Rocky Mountain Institute. And we'll look forward to the next interview. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Malcolm.